0: Good morning. Uh, Scripture reading is uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: So I I do feel a little like I'm hitting cleanup uh, this week. It's been four months since uh, Todd started his sabbatical. Uh, Clearly, by uh, the attendance here, word got out I was preaching one more time. Uh, But but that's okay. I don't take it personal. Um, It it has been um, uh, a pleasure for me to be able to help out in the small ways I've been able to while Todd's been away and to be able to have the opportunity to preach here a few times uh, during that time. Uh, so I, I thank you for that. And it's, I, I've had a chance to chat with Todd over the last week, and he is kind of chomping at the bit to get back. He's excited to, to return, and uh, so that's all good. Lord, right now we just pray that you would give us eyes to see the goodness that you have for us. That you would let our hearts receive the mercy you have prepared for us. That as we consider this passage of scripture, we would understand the depth of the love and the grace you have for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the midst of Luke chapter 12. And a little bit earlier in Luke, Jesus is far away and scripture says, Luke says, and Jesus fixed his eyes upon Jerusalem and began to head there with intentionality. From the moment Jesus fixes his eyes upon Jerusalem and his death, his teaching takes on a much more serious tone. There is in his speech more talk of death, his death, uh, other people's death, death in parables, he also talks about the death of the current religious system, which is built upon the law, ritual, sacrifice, and institutional authority. It's death, death, death. Death is the focus not only because that is where Jesus himself is heading, but because he knows the punchline to that great cosmic joke knock, knock, life. Oh, come on. Try that again. Knock, knock. Life. Death. Okay, I know if you have to explain a joke, it's not usually worth telling, but this is precisely the joke that Jesus has been telling since his opening night show some three years earlier. He's been explaining the joke. If you want to have life, you have to die. If you want to have power, you have to humbly submit if you want to be in charge you have to become a slave if you want to be rich you must give it all away if you want revenge on those who hurt you you must forgive them if you want wisdom you must play the role of the fool if you want to be found you have to first get lost if you want to be first you must come in last Now, once you get the joke, it's actually quite funny, and you see it everywhere. See, at this point, a crowd of about a few thousand people have gathered around Jesus... And he has been systematically dismantling the current religious structure and the hierarchy while also teaching about the ruthless and relentless love of God. It's all very serious and heady stuff. And he's really getting into it when some random guy in the crowd pipes up, puts up his hand and says, Excuse me, Jesus, 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 um, I have a question for you. And it's, it's a rather personal question. Now, what he does here in this passage isn't entirely inappropriate. Since the days of Moses, teachers and rabbis have been charged with the responsibility of being judges and arbiters over personal disputes. And some of those disputes include uh, land and inheritances. And, and we all know that inheritances can sometimes get quite contentious, as Jesus will demonstrate in an upcoming parable about a man with two sons inheritance disputes are still common and divisive today some of you have personal experience in this area dealing with things when you're going through wills and so we can appreciate and relate to this man's sense of urgency and his passion on the issue here is a rabbi standing before him he is one who has the authority to to judge and to be arbiter in this case though he doesn't exactly uh give us an unbiased explanation of the situation does he he simply says, Rabbi, can you please tell my brother to give me my share of the inheritance? Notice that not a lot of detail is offered. We don't know. Is it about money? Is it about a sheep? Is it about a house? Is it about a vineyard? Is it worth a little or a lot? We, we don't know, but it doesn't really matter. Jesus gracefully and lovingly, as he always does, responds to the, desperate, to the man's desperate situation by saying, Hey, pal, who died and made me judge over you? You see the joke right there? Jesus is asking him, who made him judge? Well, he did. Jesus made... Well, okay, the Father made Jesus judge over this man when, when he was born of the flesh and, and born to, to die and reconcile us to the Father and then to sit at God's right hand in judgment over the world. So, in fact, when Jesus says, who died and made me judge over you, the answer is, well, I'm going to die and be judge over you. So the man, though he didn't know it, went to the right person. He went to the right place. He went to the king of kings. He went to the judge of judges to find resolution to his dispute. Only Jesus is not interested at this point in, in judging this sort of dispute. The man, you see, went seems to have gone straight to the Supreme Court when really his first step should have been to speak to an uh, arbiter at a small claims court. Anyhow, Jesus takes advantage of the situation that is presented to him to teach more about the kingdom of God over and against the kingdom of this world. It's almost always what the parables are about. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. And Jesus warns the crowd. He says, take care. Protect yourself against the least bit of greed in your life. For life is not defined by what you have even when you have a lot of it. And then Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them the story of a rich man, a farmer, whose land produces more food than 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 he knew what to do with, more food than he could possibly handle. It was a bumper crop of biblical proportion, so to speak. It was a blessed abundance. He was oozing with food. It was coming out his his nostrils, not unlike when they when they uh, when the israelites were wandering around the desert and they said jesus we want more than just manna and 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 jesus is fine i'll give you quail until you vomited out your nose it's it's a little like that there's just this bumper crop he doesn't know what to do with it the man wonders what am i going to do with all these riches all this that has been given to me it would be a waste to let it go to waste and so after thinking about it for some time he decides He decides the best thing to do is to tear down his old barns, which were, let's be honest, quite small, and build newer ones and bigger ones to store all the grain that he has been given. And then the man thinks to himself, it will all be good. I will be set for life. Everything will, be, will work out perfectly. He just won the lottery, the lotto 649. He can do whatever he wants. He's the first man in scripture to have the Freedom 55 plan offered by Jerusalem Life. He says, now I can travel, I can eat, I can drink and be merry, I can go on vacations, I can buy a lake home, I can go fishing whenever I want, I can golf whenever I want. The rest of my life is a dream come true. I can do all the things on my bucket list. Won't it just be awesome? The man reveals an insight into our human heart, doesn't he? An insight where we always want just a little bit more than what we have. We want more money or more time or more square footage or bigger churches or larger budgets or greater influence or we want to be a little healthier or a little slimmer or a little smarter or whatever it is, we want more and more, just a little bit. After being accused of being greedy, John D. Rockefeller once said, I don't want all the land in the world. I just want everything that touches mine. Just a little bit more. Now the root sin here is greed. And greed does not apply only to money. It can be anything that we want more of. Adam and Eve wanted more knowledge. Cain wanted a better offering the people wanted a higher tower jacob really wanted his father's blessing moses wanted revenge the people of israel wanted gods they could see and touch and they wanted a king they could see and touch david wanted another man's wife solomon wanted wisdom and riches and military might and women Priests and prophets wanted power and control. And the list goes on and on and on today. We want a little bit more. Because if we have just a little bit more, then everything will be fine, won't it? We are a selfish creature. Now, to an extent, the selfishness and the selfishness of heart is actually sort of a good thing. It kind of keeps us alive. We we seek naturally to protect ourselves and our families because of our selfishness. It it is the selfishness, though, that also leads us to want more and more and more, and that more and more and more is rooted in fear, because if I don't have that little bit more, then bad stuff is going to happen. Now, if you have any doubts about the power of fear to drive selfishness and greed and pride, well, look only to the U.S. election. And I don't mean that to be degrading in any way, but it's so much of it, on both sides, I'm not taking sides, is driven by fear. Be afraid. Be terribly afraid for horrible things are about to befall. And that fear drives selfishness and greed and pride. What am I going to do with all this food, the man wonders. If I don't do something with it soon, it's going to go to waste. And if it goes to waste, I might starve. You see the fear? But if I find a way to keep it and store it, well, then all will be well. Listen to what the man says. You have it written out for you. Listen to what the man says. What words do you see or hear over and over again? What is the focus of his situation? He says this. What shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. What do you see repeated over and over again? What's the focus? I. Twelve times in these three short sentences, he talks about the unholy Trinity: me, myself, and I. Self destruction and sin is what is the root of the holy, the holy, uh, the unholy Trinity. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops and he said i will do this i will tear down my barns and build larger ones and there i will store all my grain and my goods and i will say to my soul soul you have ample goods laid up for many years so now relax eat drink and be merry now another thing to note here which is important For my argument that what jesus is really talking about is death in his final journey the word here that we have for soul what i will say to my soul uh, the greek word for it is psyche and psyche can also and most often in the new testament is translated as life so you could read this sentence And I will say to my life, life you have ample goods laid up for yourself for many years. Come, take your ease, live the dream, eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus is setting up the poor fool to do what we all do in our greed and pride to congratulate ourselves for our lifestyle and what we've done, our success, our good fortune, whenever possible. He lets him be the master of an operation that is and always has been out of control and headed for the rocks. Just as we can cheer ourselves on as captains of our own ship, and whether we acknowledge it or not, a ship that has always been taking on water faster than we can bail it out. And so Jesus delivers the cruel cruel and cutting punchline to the joke. But God said to the man, fool, which is the same word Jesus uses to denounce the Pharisees and scribes just the section before this. Fool, this night your life is required of you. See, it's about death. This night, your life is required of you and the things you've prepared, saved, gained, built. You're more and more. Whose will they become now that you're dead? Those things that we thought were so important, what will become of them? Those things that consumed our thoughts and our conversations and our restless nights, what will become of them? Our dreams of bigger businesses or bigger churches or or, or maybe the the earthly things, will, 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 will they still be so important to you when you die? And yet these are the things which occupy so much of our time and energy. And then Jesus slides in this quiet, subtle line. This is how it is with those who lay up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. If you want to follow me, learn to be more like me, says Jesus, you must deny yourself. Self-denial and humility is the way, um, the discipline we use to deal with our greed and our pride. Jesus bids us to give up ourselves, our wants, our pride, our greed, to lay down our very lives, that is, to die to self, to pick up the cross, which is his death, and follow him. Self-denial, self-death is possibly the most difficult of the spiritual disciplines. In part because it goes against every fabric of our human nature. And so the list of excuses of why we can't give up these things is long and it is reasonable. It's also difficult because self-denial and self-death are not a task. Dying to self is not something you can measure. It's not tangible in the same way that prayer and fasting are. Consider the other spiritual disciplines. I can say I'm fasting more than I did last year, or I'm reading more scripture, or I'm spending more time in prayer than I did last year. I'm giving more money to the poor. I have spent more time in self-examination or repentance than I did last year. But how do you quantify or determine, I have become better at self-denial. I have become better at self-death. I have become better at humbleness. How do you measure that? With self-denial, if you measure it, you negate it. With humility, if you seek it out, you're not going to find it. But Jesus says, unless we deny ourselves, lay down all that we are, we cannot walk in his ways, and we cannot be counted as one of his. Unless we die, we cannot live. Now this is hard, almost an unreasonable request from Jesus. But Christ is not asking us to do anything that he himself was not willing to do. Christ denied himself when he became like us. He gave up all his authority and all his power, and he emptied himself of all his glory, not for his sake, but for ours. And he humbled himself when he chose to hang upon the cross. Paul writes in Philippians, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That is, dear brothers and sisters, if Christ is of any meaning to you at all, then try to be like Him. And this is what it means to be like Him. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but to the interests of others. The disciplines of humility and self-denial. Jesus says, understand the, or Paul says, understand this. Jesus, who though he was in form, the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the form of a servant, being born in, in likeness of man. Not a rich man born into power and title, but a man born in the humility of, the, of a stench-filled barn to poor ordinary parents. And being found in human form, says Paul, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and in earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By being made low, he was lifted up. Through humility, he was exalted. And through self-denial, he was given the name above all names. Through his death, he brought life to the world you fool only by your death will you find life do you get it now i don't know what humility and self-denial necessarily look like for me so i'm not going to presume to tell you what humility and self-denial look like for you i would like to tell you what you need to do to make it easier for you But as I said, it's not like the other disciplines. I can't just say, well, here's three different types of prayer that you can try. Or here's a few tips on how to fast. It looks different for each of us. But it is absolutely necessary if we want to follow Christ. But I know that there are some places, some things we can do. There are some places we can start. Prayer is a place to start. The prayer of self-examination specifically is a great place to start. Lord, search my heart. Know my anxious thoughts. Search me. What am I holding on to? What is in me that is prideful? What is in me that is greedy? Show it to me, Lord. How am I like the man in the gospel? How am I selfish? Where is my pride? What must I deny and leave behind? Ask God to search that out in you. There's also prayers of humility. Prayers of examination and humility are not the easiest prayers to pray. But if you're willing to, I do have a place for us all to begin. I'm going to pray a prayer, a litany of humility, a prayer of humility. It's going to appear on the screen. It's on the screen. It's just not on that one. But it's on that one. I know, not, not being an Anglican church, the responsiveness is, is something different for you. But basically, I'm reading the white parts and you're reading the, the yellow parts. Let's pray. From the desire of being praised, from the desire of being honoured, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of comfort and ease, from the fear of being humiliated, From the fear of being criticized. From the fear of being passed over. From the fear of being forgotten. From the fear of being lonely. From the fear of being hurt. From the fear of suffering. That others may be loved more than I. That others may be chosen and I set aside. That others may be praised and I unnoticed. O Jesus, meek and humble of heart. 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 Help me to put my self importance aside to learn the kind of cooperation with others that makes possible the presence of your father's household. Amen.